This evening, we're really honored to have three wonderful natural builders and, and natural water wizards as well. Uh, first, we're going to hear from a team of uh, Eugenie Freyrick, close? Freyrick. Freyrick. Okay. <laughs> and Michael O'Brien. And Eugenie uh, studied art history at Colorado College and uh, has mutated into uh, an eco-roof expert and joined EcoTrust as an AmeriCorps volunteer about a year ago and really supervised a lot of the construction for the eco-roof um, above us. Um, Michael O'Brien has a background in energy efficiency and healthy indoor air quality and recently took a position with the city's Office of Sustainable Development, which has done wonderful work promoting green building. And uh, tomorrow night, we're really going to be hearing about how green building and natural building are synergistic and can be learning from each other. So they will be talking about water uh, and, and ways to work with water ecologically in buildings. And uh, we'll take about 40 minutes or so. And it's fine to ask clarifying questions, but try to keep kind of the, the deep philosophical questions for after their presentation. They'll have some extra time for discussion. And then we'll hear from Elka Cole, who is a cob builder. And um, I think she'll also be happy to take questions. Do you want them during or after? Uh, <laughs> just after. OK, so maybe save your questions for after. Um, so please uh, welcome our first presenters. And um, so we kind of want to 
want to change that thought process when it comes to buildings. And so um, our hope for tonight during this conversation is that you guys all think, um, rather than thinking as people who are observing water traveling through a building, that you think as the water traveling through the building and kind of think like the raindrop. And so we thought that some people might struggle with that a little bit. And so we brought some visual aids, which are these little um, raindrop bindies. And so if you want to put it. So those of you who got the bindies, would you pass them around your rows and everybody put a bindy in your forehead or yeah. a place that seems yeah. suitable to you? So you might not be able to see your own bindi, but when you look around at everyone else, you remember that we're all just like the raindrops. So. Huh? Are the bindies going around? Do we need more? So Mike and I, talking about raindrops, we, we were discussing how we felt that basically a single raindrop is really packed with potential for life and that um, a raindrop is really a pretty powerful source of life and as it travels from the sky on the plants, for example, in an intact, uninterrupted natural system, water has many different functions once it hits a plant. And um, so our I bring kept coming back to the idea of wouldn't it be cool if buildings were designed like plants or trees? Right. And um, that's something that we heard last year with William McDonough. He talks about that a lot. But it, um, in general, it's it's a pretty good source of inspiration. So this slide is an example of what we are striving towards, what we would like to ultimately have with our buildings and with water. And um, Mike, do you want to add anything? This is a beautiful photograph taken by Mike at Waldo Lake down by Eugene. Well, just notice that the water has hit the plants and it's still clean. The first thing that's going to happen when it hits our buildings is it's going to get polluted. So this is where we'd like to go, but we have a long way to go before that. Because this is what we have right now. You know, this is a pretty typical urban landscape. That's another thing Mike and I are talking tonight all about. Um, trying to incorporate water strategies in buildings in the urban landscape. And, um, but all of it applies really to buildings anywhere. But this is, this is, there's definitely a level of urgency to dealing with water in the urban landscape. Because, I mean, if there's uh, one word to describe this photo, it's impermeable. You know, if you look at that entire scene, it, it's paved roadways, um, driveways, sidewalks, and then rooftops. And um, not a lot of vegetation, not a lot of permeability. So the water hits that any surface in this photo. And then you see it, it flows quickly. And then the, there's the river. All of a sudden, it's this very distinct channel. There's no kind of gradual transition between the building and the urban landscape and then the waterway that has to deal with all of this water that hits all those paved areas. So what happens when it rains in a city? Um, there are a lot of different things that happen. Um, there are all of these um, particles of dust and bacteria and um, all of the pesticides, chlorides, everything from cars. That's all kind of swimming around on the surfaces in the city, on the rooftops. It settles anywhere that's dry and hard surface. And then when it rains, the water picks up all of those materials. Um, also, what happens with all of that impermeable surface is that the temperatures rise in all of the concrete. And then when the water flows over those warmer surfaces, the water temperature rises. Um, all of this flows very quickly and in large volumes into the stormwater drains and ultimately into the waterways. And so the, the impacts of that are um, several. 
obviously it contaminates the water, the water bodies that receive all of this stormwater. That has a serious effect on all of the aquatic species that are living in that water. Um, fish that are trying to spawn that usually need cold, clear water are getting mucked up with the warmer and polluted water. Um, they also need the temperatures to be cooler. Um, and then the velocity and the volume of the stormwater that's flowing into the water systems really speeds up the erosion that happens along the beds of these streams. Um, basically, every time it rains in a city, the stormwater effect is kind of like a flash flood. It's like a mini flash flood. And so everything gets speeded up, and that ultimately impacts the waterway. So around here, that's the Willamette River and the Columbia Slough. That they receive the bulk of the stormwater from our city. That all gets out to the Columbia eventually. So then it rains, and then within seconds, that rain has become this dead water substance that has to be eliminated. So that water isn't doing what it was originally intended to do, which was to create and generate life. And, um, and then further from that is that people really don't witness any of that. Um, there are over 400 miles of stream under Portland alone that is flowing through pipes to get into the um, larger bodies of water. We're completely disconnected from the fact that we even live in a watershed. And um, so none of this happens in front of us. It's all underground. And, um, and we don't... We don't have any, you know, traditionally, culturally, there's a strong connection in communities to water. And um, we don't really have that, and it's, it's sad. So, so these are just some more illustrations of what's kind of happening in the urban landscape. Um, so this is the, the idea of the heat island effect, which is something they talk about a lot these days, which is that in urban areas, the temperatures are at least 10 degrees warmer than in the surrounding rural areas. That's caused by all of these impervious surfaces and the lack of vegetative cover and evapotranspiration that occurs with the moisture that hits these paved areas. And so these are just satellite photographs. On the left, you have it during the day, and on the right, you have it during the night um, in urban versus suburban. The red indicates heat, or the yellow on the right-hand side. And it's a pretty stark contrast. And um, it's pretty poignant also on the the um, suburban images, the, the highest concentration of heat is on all the roadways as well. You can see that um, the areas where there are the cars and the long asphalt strips, um, it's pretty hot. And then this is a very familiar site to us all, which is um, the most common um, fate for water in the city, which is that um, curbs channel all of the water that gathers on streets and sidewalks um, down into these drains, and along the way, that water becomes very contaminated. You want to add anything, Mike? It's just, uh, think about how fast this happens. A moment ago, it was raining. You guys are being the rain now, right? Thinking like a raindrop, and you fell with all this hope <laughs> about what could happen, and now this is you. Yeah. So, however, so that's all the bleak stuff. So our belief is that this is all going to change. And um, our hope would be that it would change by you know, events like this, by faith in human nature and the fact that people are going to, on their own, recognize that this is sad and tragic and that it needs to change. But probably realistically, necessity is going to kick in pretty soon. And it is already. 
And so um, all of the ways that water is dealt with as an issue, it has to change. I mean, our city is spending millions of dollars to kind of reroute um, Tanner Creek, for example, which is um, part of the um, kind of stormwater conflict here in our own city. And um, the Willamette River is a Superfund site. You know, so there are some pretty um, startling facts about the state of water and stormwater in the city that's just forcing us to have to start to rethink um, stormwater and rethink water and, and rethink the relationship between water and buildings. And so this is where we'd like to take ourselves back for a second. Th these are some images, or this is an image that Mike shot at Opal Creek, which is down um, south of here and east of Salem. How many people have been to Opal Creek? Everyone should go to Opal Creek. And um, it's, it's some of the most beautiful illustrations of water. It's a place you can go and see um, healthy water. So you want to know what your other raindrop friends who were lucky enough to fall in the forest, their experience, and what healthy water should look like, because you don't see it in the city. This is a great place to go. So our sort of challenge to anyone who's thinking about building and building anything is to if you're thinking, if you're trying to get back to this, this healthy water idea, it's to start thinking about water in relation to buildings from the moment that the water falls out of the sky. And so water falls out of the sky, what's it going to do first on this structure? It's going to hit the roof or whatever the top of that building is. Okay, what, what can I do with the water at that level? And how can I use the water as an ally and how can I use it to um, help strengthen and build up the character of that structure. So then it falls from the roof, where does it go? It, it travels down, obviously gravity plays a big role, but there are a lot of different ways that water can travel down. It can go in a straight line, or it could fall through a series of terraced, um, terraced plantings, it could go through a series of water sculptures, it could create sound. What happens when it hits the ground? Do we want to send it off somewhere? Do we want to store it? Do we want to begin infiltration. So I, I just challenge, or I don't challenge, but it just seems like it, the logical thing to do in order to maximize the potential of every drop of water is to begin to think about the water from the beginning of um, the time that you think about the structure at all. So sort of um, functionally there are four primary goals or important goals that we were thinking about. So decreasing runoff would be a great thing to do with your building and with your building site. Um, and then increasing the infiltration of the water and also the evapotranspiration, which means providing more vegetation on the site for the water to process through the plants as well. So then by doing that, you're supporting new growth. So you're enabling the water to actually provide new life and, and contribute to the growth on your building and on your site. And then you're, by doing that, you can also reinforce the cultural connection make water more visible for people who are experiencing the building that you're building and creating. And so, in a nutshell, what you're saying by doing all of that is um, mimicking the natural system and how water flows through a natural system. Okay, so, kind of a switching gears, but what's the first thing that the water's going to hit when it hits your building is the roof. 
And so um, in green building and natural building, the um, most obvious um, strategy that you can do is to have a green roof or an eco roof or a roof garden or a vegetative rooftop, whatever you want to call it. Um, so there's a long tradition of eco roofs. The concept of having a vegetated rooftop is not a new idea by any stretch. These are images from the 1800s in Iceland. Um, Iceland is often cited as the origin of green roofs because there they were building with the materials that they had. It was an island, they had limited building resources. They needed roofs, but they also needed a lot of insulation. So they used stone and they used sod. And the sod was used as an insulating layer between the stone, but also then they used it as the roof. So Iceland um, uh, kind of picked up on the benefits of the green roof pretty quickly. Um, Europe has definitely um, embraced the idea of green roofs um, much more quickly than we are doing it over here. It's been around for decades. And um, some of the sort of highlights of what green roofs can do is they, they decrease the runoff. The green roof basically acts like a sponge, so it, it captures the water that hits the roof and absorbs as much, as it, as, as much of it as it can. And then um, slows down the flow of all of that rest of that water from the rooftop to the ground. Um, green roofs also increase the lifespan of a roof. This doesn't have anything to do with the water benefits of it, but the two factors that contribute most to the um, degradation of a roof are the UV exposure and then the extreme variations in temperature, the expansion and contraction of the actual roofing material. But soil and plants actually act as a buffer, an insulating layer on that roof, so they actually protect the roof from those factors. Um, they also act as a layer of insulation. And then um, all of the sort of intangibles, all of those other attributes that a green roof contributes to a building, it's beautiful to look at. Um, it uh, really increases biodiversity. It can attract a lot of beneficial insects, birds, depending on where you are. So, um, and then also, actually, we didn't add, but the reduction in the heat island effect. Going back to those NASA satellite images, if um, all of the rooftops of those buildings in those satellite images had been vegetated, had actually had plant material and soil on those roofs, then this slide would have been quite different. And the basic breakdown of a green roof is that um, you have the bottom layers, the roofing structure. Um, you use any roofing structure, um, you know, plywood, what, whatever. And then, um, then there's some sort of, there has to be some sort of membrane that is, um, that seals the roof from moisture. And then you have an eco-roof membrane. And there are a lot of different, in, in modern times, there have been a lot of different membranes that have been developed. But somehow they address um, sealing the roof from moisture, root resistance, so keeping the roots from penetrating into the um, roofing layers below, and then also providing drainage somehow. And then you have the substrate, which, has, um, which varies a lot now. I mean, the most obvious would be to think to have soil, but you could also have um, just porous gravel. You could have these new open cell foam mats that they're using. Um, a friend of mine built this beautiful house on the coast in South Carolina and used recycled carpet as a, um, a roofing membrane. So you can use a lot of different materials. Be, be creative about what you use. And, um, and then, of course, there's soil. And then plant material on top of that. And really, you could use um, any kind of plant that tolerates the depth of soil that you have on the roof. Um, sedums are the most common, or stone crop is what they're called. They're succulents. They're very hardy. 
and they don't need a lot of organic material to grow. And um, there are over 800 varieties, so we have a lot of options. Um, and then there are a lot of different techniques out there today. These are some images that Mike took on a trip to Germany. Um, and this, this is, the roofing membrane that they used is the same one that's used up here on our roof. It's a modified asphalt, and it has a very thin layer of copper deeply embedded into the membrane that prevents the roots from going down. And the copper is really embedded in there. There isn't any leaching going on or anything like that. And then on top of that, there are these um, <coughs> hydrogel crystals, which are used in um, landscaping, and they expand to several times their size. And they're kept in place by this white polyester fabric. And what happens is every time the roof gets wet, the crystals expand. It creates all of these peaks along the roof, and the roots have um, access to water storage. And then the peaks also provide or have valleys in between them, so it provides this drainage system for the roof as well. That's a pretty high-tech solution to um, having a green roof. It's, um, there are a lot of others that are much more simple than that. But it's just an example of how, um, in Germany, this, this roofing membrane was developed and um, just shows how far along um, other parts of the world are relative to um, us over here. But you don't really need to go that route at all to install a roof. It's just one example. Um, and then these are just some examples of different plants that, um, these are all plants that are native to the Northwest and are actually all examples of ones that are on our green roof but you can take many different routes with the plants that you choose. You could go edible um, or not. You could use grasses, uh, wildflowers, um, or just sedums, depending on what you want. And then, so after the water has hit the roof, it has to flow down. And on our building, it, they went with probably the most um, boring and unimaginative, unimaginative, I'll be the first to admit it, or um, pointed out, but way for the water to get from the rooftop to the ground, which is what that they had downspouts. And there's just two straight pipes on the western side of the building that go in a straight line down to the bioswales down below. Mike is going to walk us through a building that comes up with some more creative ways. Um, gravity will get the water down to the ground eventually, but there are a lot of different creative options that you can have in between to get the water to kind of dance its way down the building. But then once it hits the ground, um, there, it's a great chance to start thinking about infiltration or any kind of water storage. And this building went with infiltration, and so all of the landscaping in the parking lot is designed to receive all of the stormwater from the roof and then from the parking lot. So the swales that are the closest to the building are planted with plants on the bottom that are flood tolerant, and then they're much drier species on the top. These swales are bottomless, and so that means that the water eventually is going to seep down into the natural groundwater supply. So going back to the idea of mimicking the natural system, in the natural system there's um, less runoff and quite a bit of infiltration or evapotranspiration that occurs. So we were trying to work with that the best we could in this building. And then on the far side of the parking lot, the parking lot is actually sloped towards the landscaping on the far side. And then all of those plants, the microbes in the soil, it all starts to work to filter that water and then um, seep down to the groundwater below. So this building was just one example of um, water solutions. There are certainly many more. And so um, I guess 
the, the idea is that really with buildings, up to this point, conventional ideas around building buildings is that water is a hassle and a headache and needs to go away. But the reality is that really there's nothing that says that we couldn't be um, absolutely creative and um, trying to do anything that would be um, kind of spiritually fulfilling, certainly ecologically fulfilling. And um, so Mike is going to take us now to a, a huge picture, an example of this of a building that um, really kind of took off with the idea of dealing with water in the building. And then after Mike, we're going to come back down to um, something that is more right within our own backyard, something that um, just options that are tangible for anyone who wants to deal with water in a building. So, Eugenie, do you mind being the slide maestro? No. Okay. Well, I think Eugenie is right, and you guys probably know this, that in the city, the idea that you raindrops are a problem is very deeply ingrained. So the whole concept of water in the city is you have to get it off your roof, get it away from the building. Otherwise, it's going to cause problems. You can have spalling of your concrete. It gets water into it, cracks, breaks. Uh, you could have leaks. You could have mold. We've had a lot of mold disasters in buildings. And when you get mold in a building, that's because water got into the building somehow and stayed there long enough for the mold to grow. So the general perception of this is it's a problem, get rid of it, and, the, and that's proper building practice. So um, I wanted to find a building that would really illustrate the opposite. And um, many of you know about Keepers of the Waters here in Portland and Betsy Damon's work. Uh, Kelly Rogers from Keepers was good enough to tell me about a building in Nuremberg, Germany, where the designers made a deliberate effort to try to integrate water into the building in as many ways as they could. And we won't even see all the ways that they did that, but we'll do a kind of a quick tour through the building just to show that it's possible to do this in the kind of big commercial buildings that we build in our cities. So this is a building that combines retail spaces, office spaces, apartments, a kindergarten, a parking garage, all the things that you usually find in you know, regular old urban buildings, but does it in a very new, different way that I hope is a, a kind of a model for how we can start thinking about buildings here, too. OK. Yeah. Uh, so here's the kindergarten kids. And they're walking along at the uh, entrance of this building called the Prisma. And from the street side, it's a, it's a nice building, but it has kind of like a low profile. You, wouldn't, you could easily walk by it and not think that there was too much going on here that was different. You have to kind of see what's going on in the inner part of the building. So here's a little floor plan they have for when you walk in. The kids were over here. They were walking past the entrance of the building. And what we're seeing here is this is the layout of the stores, the stores on that side. Then there's offices above on the floors above this. And there are apartments above that. The little kindergarten building is here. There's an apartment building on that side. And then there's some more stores over there. And uh, the blue in here is a big sun space greenhouse. And then there's uh, an open courtyard in here that's been planted with native plants. Does that all make sense? We'll go up and look at it now. Back up once. Does that make sense? OK, well, let's go up to this corner of the building, pop up to the top, and see how this is starting to play out. So we're collecting water off of the, the roofs. And the first thing that happens is it gets fed to these terrace planters that run along the face of the building. So these things cascade down. They go on down inside the sun space in there. Um, we'll look at another one that's right down below me here. 
And then this little one out here is actually a play area for the kids for the kindergarten. So it's only partly planted. And then you can see down in the courtyard there. Yeah. So there's one of the, the eco roofs there. And now we've come down inside the building and we're looking at the sunspace roof from below. These are the sunshades that come out automatically when the sun comes out. And these pipes are bringing the water down from the terraces. Uh, and some of the water is going to feed plants on the terraces that are inside the sun space. We'll see that in a second. And when you get down to the ground floor, the water comes back out into the open. So on the ground floor, there are pillars that have water channels coming down the front. So you can, when it rains, you see water running down the inside of the building. Now you can see examples of where the, the water's come down from the roof, and there are more terraces coming down the inside of the building, and more plants that are being fed by that water. Then in this building, they store some of the water. They have big tanks under the building so that they can meter it out and have like a regular flow of water after the rainfall stops. And the water is fed up into this little pool from where it's being stored under the building, and it's used to create a stream that runs through the sun space and then to the outdoors. <coughs> so here we've come closer to the sun space now. Can you see the little stream right in here? It's going to run here past the fronts of the stores and the little cafe that's down there. So here's the, here's the other end of the stream. We were up there a minute ago. The water's come down here. I'm standing on a kind of a patio in front of the cafeteria. I'll show you in a minute, or the bakery. And then the, the stream turns here and goes to the outdoors. So the stream is actually going under the outside wall of the sun space there and feeds a pond out in the courtyard. There's a lot happening with using the air and the stream to cool the sun space. So just as one example, these events open automatically when it gets to a certain temperature, and it's drawing air across the water and into the uh, sun space. And then what's right back here, we'll see a little more of in a second, is a way of making that happen a lot faster with water. Okay. Yeah, so here's, here we're standing looking across the pool at the entrance courtyard. The kids were out there, so we're in here now. There's a sort of an outdoor patio space that people can enjoy in all weather. This is a glass sculpture. It's glass panels on either side of a kind of a steel panel in the center. And the metered water is run down the inside of the glass. And it has that effect that you get when you turn the shower on. You know, it displaces air. So when the water is being run down through this thing, it's pulling air from the outdoors up and down, so it's picking up uh, cool and humidity from the water, and then it's being circulated into the inside of the sun space. So here is a close-up shot of the water falling through the, the glass sculpture. So when this thing is running, you get the sound of the falling water in the space. You get the feeling of that sort of fresh uh, air coming from off the water like you have when there's rain. Um, and at night, there's lights inside the panel, so you get that color of the glass 
So it's uh, very much an art object. It's a practical thing that ventilates the building, and it makes use of the water. And then in the evening, uh, they flush the building with air from underneath that has been cooled by the, the concrete mass that's below grade in the building. So what all these, the base of the towers, these are the things we saw the water running down before, where these lights are coming on, air is coming up through these things and venting out into the sun space and then onto the outside. So they do sort of a night flush to start the building out cool the next morning. Yeah, I think so, because the sun space is a big glass wall. So the sun space has a couple things that help it. One is the top glass can open, so the air can really flow through the sun space rapidly. Uh, but when the top glass is closed, the air flows up to the very top of the sun space and out vents that are up there. So the sun space has the ability to kind of manage the airflow to maintain comfortable temperatures, but it's getting a lot of solar gain. Okay. Is that my last shot? Go back yeah. to this one. Innovative turnover to Tom Lipton now. Tom also works for the city in the Bureau of Environmental Services. And BES is doing a lot of sort of innovative stuff around stormwater management. But what he's going to talk about is just kind of like simple eco roasting. Can you hear me back there? Yeah. Tom? Okay. I can't. Okay. So I just, I just have a couple slides to show you. I, uh, uh, I'm actually a landscape architect. I work for the Bureau, and, and all of the things that Eugenie said are usually what I say, so I'm not going to say any of that, because she's already done all this great preparation. We might need to have these... Tom's, the, Tom's the real eco-roof guru. Uh, anyway, so uh, back in, uh, well, early 90s, uh, my wife bought some soap from a company in Belgium, and on the label it had this reference to an ecological factory, and it talked about uh, the fact that it had a green roof, and that this green roof did all these things. And so we were washing dishes together, and, uh, and, I, and I worked in stormwater. So this whole idea of trying to mimic nature, we're, you know, we've been thinking about that for years. And so I started thinking, well, soil and vegetation on a roof. And of course, anybody that, you know, you look at the engineering calculations for soil versus uh, pavement, and it's dramatically different. Anyway, so that led me to start investigating this idea of green roofs. And uh, somehow we started calling them eco-roofs in Portland. Uh, for some reason. Anyway, uh, so as, as that went on, a few people did some things around uh, Portland. And this top left photo is actually a restaurant in, uh, in Wisconsin. There's a Norwegian sort of uh, Scandinavian village there. And the restaurant has been there for years, maybe 20 or 30 years. And they have uh, a grass roof, and those are goats. And the goats uh, feed on the grass. And uh, it's all part of the, you know, the kind of uh, resort area kind of thing. It's very simple. They actually sell little cabins that, that have green roofs on them. And then this is in uh, one of, uh, well, this is in southwest Portland up in the hills. And it's kind of, it was built about 35 years ago. The owner of this building is a developer himself. And uh, as, he, as the years went by, he kept a lot of trees when he built it. As the years went by, the, uh, the uh, uh, leaves and the moss, the leaves fell, the moss started to grow. And he kept it this way, and he's had it this way for about 35 years. So this isn't an intended eco-roof, but it certainly is an eco-roof. It's the first 
probably moss-covered root that somebody hasn't spent a lot of money to kill the moss to get rid of. So moss is actually friendly to all us raindrops, and we like it. Uh, so, the next slide. And I, recently I was in Eugene at the uh, Hopes Conference, or they have another name for it, but every April they have a conference. And uh, so some of the students there decided they wanted to make a, a doghouse and uh, put an eco-roof on the top of it. So this is, this is a lot of fun. And that's the dog. They weren't sure that the university would allow them to keep the uh, eco-roof there. But it's pretty simple. You know, it's like Eugenie said, it's a, a waterproof membrane and then soil and vegetation or a substrate. And then the next slide. This is my garage. Uh, it was built in 1919, uh, but I put the I retrofitted the eco roof in 1996. And uh, the first thing I did is I, I upgraded the interior structural components. So I put in some additional studs. I put in some bracing. It cost me about $60 for uh, materials, and then all the labor was my my love. And uh, then I I purchased some waterproof material. This is a long way from what uh, uh, any of the, uh, the manufacturers suggest. And I'm not suggesting this. I'm just telling you what I used uh, because it is what I used. And it's been there six years. And it hasn't leaked yet. And it's, it was clear visqueen. It was uh, $8.95 at the hardware store. And I put it on it. And now, I'm kind of a nerd. And I like science and things like that. So I didn't intend to make this a permanent structure. What I wanted to do was find out by putting this, the uh, the, the, uh, the living components on this, the soil and vegetation, I wanted to find out how well it would hold storm water, because that's my job, to work on storm water and, and, and reduce the amount of flow. So, uh, so anyway, so it's lasted six years, and I measured it for two and a half years. I got out there every day it was raining. I was out there twice a day taking measurements, and you know, I have this big barrel, and I find out. And it's amazing. This, this little roof acts just like the, uh, the information says it should that, that comes out of Europe. And uh, so since then, we've got a lot of demonstration projects. We helped EcoTrust put the eco roof on this building. Uh, and then we've got uh, some other buildings that we have monitoring equipment on and that type of thing. So we're finding out it works really great for uh, stormwater management. And it looks like it's going to work, show that it works really great for energy as well. Anyway, uh, and I haven't watered this. This was taken in, yeah, just this year. This is the latest version, and it's, uh, I haven't watered this with irrigation for two years. So this is how it survived on its own for the last two years. Prior to that, I, I watered it like once every two weeks or once every three weeks. How much rain do you have to get in order to have runoff off the roof? Uh, my, this roof right here is about two, two, to, two to two and a half inches of soil. So it depends on the soil depth, or really the technical term is substrate depth, mm -hmm. or growing medium. And uh, but I like to use the word soil and uh, or dirt. And uh, so there's a there's a whole lot. I, I can't try and explain it right now, but there's a lot of information. And if you want to give me a call, I'll give you some of the detail because we're finding that our demonstration projects we have one with a thin soil layer, another one with a thicker soil layer, and we're we're measuring these uh, projects. And it, it's relative to the uh, the season as well. If it's relatively dry, my roof holds uh, about three quarters of an inch of rainfall before there's any runoff at all, uh, now that it's become more established. The first storm event that it ever experienced, it only held about four tenths of an inch of rainfall, and then it started running off. So within those six years, it's actually increased in its capacity. But this is probably the maximum it's going to do in terms of holding a, a storm event. 
I don't know if I have time to take questions. Quickly, maybe, what species did you point out? Oh, I'm sorry. OK, yeah. Predominantly sedum. There are about eight species of sedum on my roof. And as Virginia said, there's about 800 or something like that in the world. They're not all native. And we have some projects where there are native species being planted. And we've got some really good sedum in the northwest, the native sedum. So they appear to be as good, if not maybe better, than some of the natives that are out there. There's a lot of non-natives in nurseries. But there are some natives as well. And let's see. It's pretty simple. I mean, you have to look at the detail. And you have to make sure you've got the waterproof membrane just right and everything like that. So anyway, I've got a book called Do It Yourself, Eco Roofs. And that's the only part of it that's written in English. Everything else is in German. But it looks good. Did I let you borrow that? Anyway, so I think the next one's the last slide. OK, yeah, you combined all these. Good. So this is a slide of a building in Japan. This particular company is a reforestation company in Japan. They come to Oregon every year to buy grass seed for part of their activities. And what they've been doing is that they've passed some laws in certain cities, I think especially Tokyo, in Japan, where they're requiring roof gardens and the equivalent of green roofs on new buildings and some retrofits. So this company, this is their company building. And I asked them why they put the eco roof on. And they said, well, because of all this business that they're going to get, because now they're one of the experts in Japan, because nobody's ever done this before. And it looks like they did a pretty good job. That's over a year ago. And then this is one, I think it's in France. Anyway, this is one of the companies. Like Eugenie said, there are a lot of companies. And this is just a picture of a slide. I haven't been there. But I just thought it was a pretty neat, kind of like a little subdivision, except a little more compact and taking up less space. And then the footprint on the ground, comparing this with that photograph that Eugenie showed with all those impervious surfaces. You know, there's only three surfaces we have in the urban environment, predominantly. It's either a roof, or it's some kind of pavement, or it's some kind of, well, mostly artificial landscape, and then, of course, the natural landscape. And then that's a picture of a building. That's another eco-roof company that's different than, actually, no, it's the same company as this. And you can see that it can be constructed on roofs with a steep pitch. And Mike's got some other slides that he has from when he went to Germany. He saw some other buildings that are maybe even steeper than that. And I have a brochure, but I only have seven. So I'd like to give these to anybody that doesn't have internet access, because they're on our internet website. And if you want that website, it's, well, let me know. I'll give you my card or something. It's cleanrivers-pdx.org, if you can remember that. And then so I have seven. And we can get more if you want. So let me know. So thank you. Real quick, can you say how they stop landslides off the steep roof? Well, there are some very interesting techniques, sort of engineering techniques, you might call them. And it's a little bit too complicated to tell you now. But there's a way to do it. You remember the slide that Eugenie had of the mats? The one I saw has the steep roof. They started the mats on the ground, planted the sedums. The sedums grew into the mats. And then they took a crane and lifted the mats up and dropped them on the roof. It's just like laying a sod. And they've been up there for 18 years. So it means that we're supposed to be planning now for a hunker of an earthquake.
and in an earthquake, there's going to be a lot of horizontal acceleration of the building. So if there's all this weight up there, it's going to be like trying to pick up a ball and swing it. The weight just gets away from you. Um, so the reason that you see what the Germans call extents, like the one up here, is that only two inches of soil up there. So the soil, the plant, and saturated with water, it's about 12 pounds a square foot. And the 12 pounds, even on this building, is within the structure's capability of withstanding an earthquake load. But it's a limit to going to the deeper roofs, like you would see in Germany, that are as much as 8 or 10 inches thick. That you probably could only do here on a very stout building. Well, you, you do design it for that extra weight as well. It's not, you purposely have the structural engineer design it to handle it. You, the, the structural engineers or architects, depending on the, the type of building, have to add that weight to their calculations. So it's it's not just kind of, and you just can't go throw it on top of any building. You do need to know a little something about structure and engineering and that type of thing. So it uh, it is a precaution that I forgot to mention that I think, uh, and eco roofs everywhere is going to have to have some way to help people understand that. In our brochure, we make that one of the first suggestions is that people check with someone who knows about structures so they can give them some advice. Uh, because some buildings are not really ready to hold up much on their own by themselves already. So you've got to look at that issue. Give you a sense of weight. Ours upstairs has two inches of soil, and when it's saturated, it weighs about 12 pounds per square foot. So that's the idea. 